morning, everyone. So we are in the book of Judges, the 11th chapter, and we're going to finish that chapter this morning. And if you remember way back when we started this series in the first chapter, I had this little disclaimer, and I've mentioned it once before in this series. And the disclaimer is, just because it is recorded and written for us here in the book of Judges, it does not mean that is what we should do. The book of Judges simply records for us the events that took place. And sometimes God does not give us a moral judgment call on whether or not what happens was right or wrong. He's assuming that we have a knowledge of Scripture and that we're able to figure that rightness and wrongness out ourselves as we go through it and we search other Scripture and we apply other Scripture. So we're looking at a passage this morning that I said last week might be the single most difficult passage in the Old Testament for me to come to grips to. Now, I have a great understanding of it, but accepting what happened is really, really hard. And I hope that as we see it unfold this morning, the ending story of Jephthah and his family, that we actually end up not depressed and or angry at the events, but that we look at it as a way of understanding how God even forgives us for our sin, even if it is tough and terrible types of sin. Uh, but we're starting this morning with this idea that um, there is a real need in our Christian lives to have this two-sided coin called zeal and knowledge. And one without the other is a very dangerous situation to be in. Knowledge is an understanding of God's truth. Basically, I know where it says this in Scripture and where it says that in Scripture. I can find it. I can think about it. I may have memorized it. But I certainly have an ability to understand what God has said. Truth. Knowledge. Zeal is that emotional passion that I need to do all that I possibly can to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love my neighbor as myself. It is the motivation and the passion and the desire and the, the interest in wanting to see God's kingdom established in our hearts and in the world around us. But one without the other is extremely dangerous. And we are prone to kind of fall on either side of that fence. We're, we're called to, to walk that line and not to fall to one side or the other. But sometimes, as we see in the life of Jephthah, we will fall to one side or the other. Too much reliance on knowledge. And Paul gives us a warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that knowledge puffs up. If we focus on just truth, on just what does God say, and memorizing and, and understanding Scripture, which is a good thing, but if we don't have heart and soul attached to it, then we can become extremely judgy. We can look down at others. And we can forget the greatest thing that Christ has reinforced to us, love. And love is both an emotion as well as an action. And the same thing can happen if we focus just on the emotion and feelings of the Christian life and we forget about the truth. Because then we aimlessly love and we may be loving the wrong things. And we may be passionate about the wrong things. And that passion and that emotion can get us in a lot of trouble if it's not also guarded by truth. And in fact, in Romans chapter 10, verse 2 and 3, Paul says that if you, basically if you reject truth, if truth is not part of your life, 
you reject God's righteousness. You then don't know right from wrong, and you just wander in that unknown, in that unknown rebellion against God. So it is vitally important that truth and knowledge are both continuous growing events in our lives. And we're going to see in Jephthah's life, he missed out on knowledge. Had he had knowledge of what God had said and what God desires, then all of his emotion and passion could have been dealt with. But he didn't deal with that in the right way. I want us to deal with it in the right way. Now, the story picks up, remember, that Jephthah was kicked out of his family home, out of his city of Gilead, because why? Wasn't the same mother as his brothers and sisters. He was the son of a prostitute. Instead of taking on the father, they took it out on him. He was rejected. They realized, "Uh uh-oh, we're in big trouble. We need a mighty warrior. And Jephthah was that mighty warrior, and he was also a godly man, close to God, knew the covenantal God, loved God. Still not perfect, but he loved God. So he came back, and he must have uh, forgiven them, and they forgave him. And so all was better, and he was about to take on the Ammonites, which would have been in the northeast side of Israel. So way down in that direction and out to our east, far away, but encroaching upon Israel. And we see in the very first few verses the words and vow that got Jephthah into trouble. Now, he's about ready to go out into battle. And when he's going out to battle, I imagine he's trying to pump himself up. I mean, he has no idea what the Lord is going to, how the Lord is going to deliver him. And he's leading all of these Israelites with him. And and it's a ragtag of a band. And it's not really solid. There's no real leader. He's kind of stepped into the role. But he doesn't know how they're going to fight. He knows that God is going to give them victory, but doesn't know the details. And so he's probably trying to psych himself up. Now, if you've ever had a sporting event, or maybe you're just going to the grocery store, you need to psych yourself up and go, all right, this is what we're going to do, right? We're all in it, all together, one for all, hip, hip, hooray. And whatever that mantra is that you kind of recite in order to get yourself psyched up for, all right, we're doing it. This is what is going through the mind of Jephthah at the time where he's leading these people into battle, and this is what he says. Verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. God endorsed him as a mighty warrior. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah and Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. So all that verse is saying is that there's a whole bunch of towns that he is going through as he's going from the west side of Israel all the way to the east side of the foreign lands of the Ammonites who were invading Israel. So it's just going town by town by town by town until finally there's no more towns. It's just the land of the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be... The Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hands. And he struck down from Aror to the neighborhood of Manith twenty cities as far as the Abel Keramim with great with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people. Of Israel. 
First, let's start with the really great news. God gave them victory. As far as the Ammonites' power extended, God gave Jepheth and those Israelites complete control and mastery of the situation. The Ammonites are no longer a thorn in the flesh of Israel. Israel can be at peace and get back to doing what it does best, which is usually rebelling against God during this time period. But they now have peace and they don't have to worry about their crops being destroyed, their women taken, their children sold into slavery. They now have peace on the borders and they can get back to normal breathing room. And it was all by the hand of God giving Jepheth victory. Every city he went to, every place he turned, victory after victory after victory after victory. God was the hero. And he used the person of Jepheth to do that. A very unlikely person, one originally rejected by his family and his town, but now he stood in the Lord's power and in the Lord's might and by his spirit, by the Lord's spirit, victorious on the battlefield. Israel had peace. But on the eve of that battle, Jepheth made a vow. He said to God, if you give me victory, I will give you something in return. And what I'm going to give you in return, whatever comes out of my tent, I will sacrifice it to you. I have no idea what was running through Jepheth's mind. There is no way of understanding that emotion or that spur-of-the-moment speech. It kind of reminds me of that age-old lesson, sometimes you need to think before you speak, right? Has any of us ever gotten into trouble speaking before we think? Yes. Thank you very much, Logan, for one of the two people that raised their hands along with myself. Some of you went like this. I get it. You don't want to be pointed out, but every one of us, every one of us have done that more than once, regretted what we said or how we said it. No taking that back. Jesus, I don't think thinking of Jephthah at the moment, but Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't swear by any other thing. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Mean what you say and say what you mean and end it right there. No need to swear by the temple, swear by God, swear by the nation, swear by the Bible, swear by your mother. No, no, no. Just simply say yes or no. Be a person of character. Yes means yes, and no be means no. And I, I've told you, and I know I fall into this trap too, uh, but several, several years ago when we did a sermon series, I talked about how uncomfortable it makes me when someone says, hey, I'm going to tell you the truth now. Or, hey, let me level with you. Or, can I be honest with you? Yes, and I know those are just words and phrases we use to kind of sometimes... Uh, just smooth over a surface or just kind of, just normal language. Hey, you know, to be honest with you, are other times you're not honest with me? I don't understand. Now's the time of honesty? Okay. Jesus simply says, in all those situations, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You still joke around. You can still have fun. You can still, still, still tell stories. That's not what this is about. This is about putting your life and your reputation online based on what you say next. And Jepheth thought he was playing a very important person to the people around him. It doesn't matter what it costs me. And that's what basically Jepheth is saying. It doesn't matter what it costs me. Lord, I want you to be the one who brings me victory. 
I will acknowledge you and you will be the one whose songs will be written about your name for what you've done in our lives. It's all about you. And he wanted to show how important it was that God was the focus, that he said, it doesn't matter what it costs me, whatever it is, if, if it's my favorite dog, if it's my favorite cat, if it's even a sheep or, or a cattle, whatever it is, whatever comes out of my front door, it's yours. Now I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt that maybe he thought it was going to be a, a dog or a cat or another animal, but generally what comes out of our front doors People, right? Yeah, your animal may run away, may go out. I get that. But more often than not, the people residing in your house are people. And so he, I don't know what he was thinking. It could have been emotion and zeal got to him, or it could be he really thought, if God gives me victory, regardless if it's my wife or one of my children or a servant, I'll sacrifice them. And it was very clear what he wanted to do, a burnt offering. So he continues, and his sin is grossly exposed. Verse 34 and 35 of Judges chapter 11. Then Jepheth came to his house at Mizpah. And behold... His daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dance. I don't think she knew what her dad had done. She came out how? Jubilant, excited, not just that daddy's home, but daddy was used by God, and now there's victory and peace in the land of Israel. Awesome. They're having a party. She's in the mindset of party, celebration. And rightly so. God had just given Israel victory in a mighty way. She was his only child, the author tells us. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. Just reinforcing the fact, this child was precious in his eyes because there was only one of them. One daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. All right, I got to tell you here, this is where I have the trouble. The trouble is, is that it almost seems that Japheth is blaming someone for all of this. Who is he blaming? Her! How dare you come out of the door? You're not supposed to be the one that comes out of the door. You've brought me grief. Whoa! Japheth, at least at the end you kind of admit you might have had a part in this. But why are you taking it out on her? Why are you blaming her? Well, that's what we do. <laughs> Our own mess, our own troubles, we usually blame other people. Eve blames Satan. Adam blamed who? Ultimately, God. Aren't you the one who gave me this woman, God? Woo he went straight to the top, blaming God. And we often, often, when we are caught in a sin, we start thinking of who put us here? 
Oh, you know what? It was that culture that did it to me. It was my education that did it to me. It was the lack of money that did it to me. It was um, the lack of good looks. It's lack of physical health. It's the la- and we start to blame everything you can imagine. And the last thing we admit, oh, maybe it was me that got me into this trouble. The other things may not have helped, but I think it was me that got me here. Jeff has started with that, blaming his daughter. Now, the reason why I said at the very beginning there is this tension between knowledge and zeal, and you need to have both knowledge and zeal. If you only have zeal, if you only have passion, if you speak without thinking and having true knowledge about a subject, you can get into lots of trouble, and Jepheth is realizing he is in a lot of trouble at this moment. And even though Jepheth had a great zeal for God, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, God crowned him with significance at that moment to lead them into battle, yet at the same time, it was zeal without knowledge. He spoke without thinking. Had he only known about Leviticus chapter 5 and Leviticus chapter 27, he would have known. God gives provisions in those two chapters. If you say something out of turn and make a vow that you regret, or you say something that you realize should not happen. God says, there's a way to get out of that. There's a way. You can. But he had no knowledge of it. He had an opportunity to escape his sin by admitting it and making restitution. But he didn't know that. He simply went with zeal and stuck to his guns. Instead of saying, Where else does God address a misspoken vow? How does he get us out of a vow that actually is sinful? Well, Leviticus tells us exactly how to do it. That is how valuable and important it is to have both knowledge and passion. If you lack knowledge, there is a really time-tested solution to that. You pick up your Bible... You turn to a chapter, and you do this really old-fashioned thing, is you read it. And in fact, if reading it is a challenge, they have these apps on your phone that you just click play, and it reads it to you. It's marvelous. It's wonderful. You're gaining knowledge. You're gaining an understanding of what God has said. And so that you might go, oh, I remember this. I don't remember exactly where it is. So God has given you two more amazing things to help you with your knowledge. He's given you other people. Every, you and I, we can help with that. And he's given us this wonderful talent and ability and tool today called Google. And you can type something in there. And I know you have to be very, very careful Don't even get me started. You have to be careful. I understand that. That's why you double-check it, reading it in Scripture, not just taking their word for it on a website, but read it yourself. And you can gain incredible amount of knowledge on that particular thing you might be struggling with. So knowledge is easily overcome. Give yourself to reading and studying God's Word. Zeal is also easy to overcome and gain, and it starts with understanding who God is and who you are. 
And once you understand who God is and who you are, all of a sudden there becomes this upwelling of thankfulness and appreciation and amazement that God would have such love and forgiveness for you that you are just overwhelmed with wanting to love and forgive others. If you lack zeal, then start at the beginning. What has God said about himself and what has God said about you? Start there. And if you lack knowledge, start with reading God's word. Had Jephthah, Google, friends, or online searches, he might have found out what Leviticus says. It was available. There were scrolls. Leviticus had already been written. Where they were, not sure. But all he had to do was start asking some of the priestly class of Aaron and say, hey, how do I get out of this? And there was bound to be someone in Israel that said, Moses talked about that in the book of Leviticus. Now, they didn't have chapters back then, but the book of Leviticus, the scroll of Leviticus, would have been common knowledge. This is how I get out of an errant vow. Jephthah, still time, hasn't happened yet. Verse 36 through the end of the chapter, verse 40, we have the nation's pain on display. And she said to him, this is Jephthah's daughter, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. I have a feeling that Jephthah was not just a mighty warrior and a godly man, but that he had definitely instilled within his family, even his one child, that it is important to love God and important to respect your parents, even, it may, even if it may cost you comfort. Now, maybe, maybe even at this point, he wasn't quite sure, she wasn't quite sure what was going on until he starts to explain it to her. And so she said to her father, let this thing be done to me, but leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. And so he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileite, four days in the year. This was such a traumatic event in the nation of Israel that they marked that day with weeping and mourning. Why? Because here was a daughter in the prime of her life, not yet married, not yet with a child, still a virgin, that was offered up as a burnt sacrifice. A burnt sacrifice to whom was she offered to? Not to Baal, not to one of the foreign gods, but to Jehovah. Jehovah never said, offer up your child that is pleasing to me and honoring to me. You don't even have to be a great student of knowledge of Scripture to know there's something wrong there. Jephthah, repent. You have two months in, to come to your senses. Two months to look to God and say, help. Two months to seek counsel. Two months to repent. 
and bear the consequences. Two months, God gave him an opportunity to say, I spoke without knowledge. I spoke with zeal. Forgive me. Do you think God would have forgiven him? Do you think God still would have required, oh, but you, say, you have to follow through now, murder your daughter in front of me to my name? No. God forgives. God would have restored. There might have been consequences to his sin. I'm not, you know, I don't know what that would be, but he could have repented at that very moment. What is tremendously interesting is you take this character, Jepheth. What is your basic opinion of him at this point? I'm not asking for an answer. Just think to yourself, on a scale of 1 to 100, 100 being, oh, he's like a Gideon, okay? Or he's like a, a Moses or a David. And 1 being, oh, man, he totally judas on us. Okay, so a Judas to a David. Where would you put him in that scale? I know I am prone to trick questions. So you are right. This is an absolutely trick question. Because in God's mind, we are either his children or we are not. There is no level of being a child of his. We are his or not. In the book of Hebrews, only time Jepheth is mentioned outside of the Old Testament, it happens in the book of Hebrews, and the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 says this about Jepheth. He's, uh, ooh, that would not have been the right passage. That would have confused everybody. And uh, just a preface, chapter 11 is called the great cloud of witnesses chapter, meaning that the author of Hebrews is taking chapter 11 and just saying, hey, these are all the people that God has been faithful to, and look at how they have been faithful. Look at how they have been faithful. Look at how they have been standards of holiness in the midst of God's people. And he goes name by name by name by name, and he gets to verse 32 of Hebrews 11. And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me or tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jepheth, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice ordained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Wow. Let me go through that, real, that name list again in verse 32. And what more shall I say, for time would not let me tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jepheth, of David, Samuel, the prophets. Look at where Jepheth's name is in there. Right between Samuel or Samson and David? Jepheth is listed as a mighty warrior of faith, as an example of faith to us? Do you think the writer of Hebrews chapter 11 was clueless about the story of Jepheth, what he did to his daughter? Absolutely not. Because the writer of the book of Hebrews was indeed God himself inspiring a human author to write exactly what was right and authoritative. So he did not make a mistake by adding Jepheth to the list. Well, if Jepheth is added to the list, could it be possible 
that we could be added to the list? Not written down in Hebrews 11, but could we also be an example of faith even with all of our failings, even with all of our shortcomings, even with all of our misplaced zeal and lack of knowledge? Could God still look at us and say, there's an example of faithfulness? Not perfection. Only Christ is perfect, but there is an example of faithfulness. I think so. I think so, because everyone listed here in this, and everyone listed in chapter 11 of Hebrews all has listings of failures as well in Scripture. Their sin is clearly pointed out, whether it's adultery, whether it's lying and backstabbing, or whether it is taking more than one wife, or whether it's killing your only child as a burnt offering and sacrifice. Every one of them, God looks upon his children and says, they're faithful servants of mine. Regardless of their flaws, I love them deeply. They are mine. Just like he looks at every one of us and says, they have their flaws. They have their embarrassing stories that everyone would be cringing at if they were made public. But they're my child. And I love them. And I adore them. And I overwhelm them with my peace and my comfort if they would only turn to me in times of affliction and trials and acknowledge me. I would be their comforting father to them and remove every hindrance, sin, and affliction. It's because he loves us. I'm going to ask the band to come up as I start to pray, but I want us to keep that very clear thing in focus. Jepheth was used by God mightily. Jepheth gained victory over the Ammonites, but Jepheth was human. A child of God, yet human, sinned grossly in our eyes and the eyes of everyone. And yet in the New Testament, he's looked at as an example of faithfulness, an example for you and I to follow. Not in his sin, but in his zeal for God. Let us be so zealous for God and so filled with knowledge that we would come to him in worship and acknowledge his love for us covers the afflictions, covers the trials, and leads us into peace and comfort. Why don't we stand and let me lead us in prayer. Our good Father, we know, Lord, that you are jealous for us, that you want of us greatness. And Father, it is only because of the work of Christ in our lives and the forgiveness that he offers us that we are able to cry out to you with praise and thanksgiving, joyously receiving you as our king, as our God, our prophet, and our priest. Lord, help us to be zealous for your truth and knowledgeable about your truth, that we might take the best of what all of these great men and women of faith have done and make it for ourselves. Hide us, Father, from the afflictions of this world and save us from the trials of our own heart. Father, we know that you love us. In Jesus' name, all of God's children said, amen.